This episode of the Security Ledger Podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, episode 190. A lot of companies weren't ready. You know, they were not ready for all of their employees to be working remotely on a dime. Six months into a pandemic that most of us thought might last six weeks, it's time to stop asking when things will return to normal and time to start asking what the new normal will look like when the COVID virus is finally beaten. In our second segment, Katie Petrillo of LastPass and LogMeIn joins us to talk about how remote work and better remote worker security will figure into the post-COVID world. But first... When the so-called zero-logon vulnerability in Microsoft's NetLogon surfaced in late September, word went out far and wide to patch the 10 out of 10 critical software hole. The job of getting that word out was made considerably easier by a number, 2020-1472, the unique identifier assigned to the security hole under the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures, or CVE, system. CVE is a kind of white pages for software holes, providing a unique identifier, a criticality rating, as well as other critical information about all manner of software vulnerabilities. Today, it is a pillar of the information security world, but it wasn't always that way. To talk about what life was like before the creation of the CVE system 21 years ago, we invited Larry Cash Dollar, a senior security response engineer at Akamai, into the studio to talk. Larry's a veteran bug hunter with more than 300 CVEs to his name. In celebration of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Larry talked to me about his first CVE and how discovering it almost got him fired. Larry Cashdollar, I'm a security incident response engineer at Akamai Technologies. Larry, welcome back to the Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks. We're here talking today, first of all, because it's October and it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and also just to look back on some of the... um, some of the changes and evolutions uh, in the space, and and one of which is um, the development of the uh, CVEs or Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures as a tracking system for vulnerabilities. And you've been doing this long enough, Larry, that you actually remember a time when there were no CVEs. So t- talk about kind of what the world was like before we had CVEs to track software vulnerabilities. Sure. It was, uh, you know, I started in this industry, it was 1994. Around that time, I was working for a, a small security consulting company out of uh, Southern Maine. And the company, we did uh, penetration testing. We did, we built uh, like firewalls. Um, we set up, you know, companies with internet access, you know, small, small companies in Southern Maine. And we, um, we would handle patching of systems and whatnot. And, you know, back then it was, you know, if there was a specific vulnerability for a specific uh, software package, it, you you didn't really know which vulnerability it was if there was more than one. So if you had, say, two buffer overflows in SendMail, you wouldn't didn't really know which patch might be applied to your version of SendMail because it wasn't really it didn't have a specific, unique way to determine which patch was for which vulnerability. And that's when, you know, they might already come up with CVE, uh, which was great for, for folks like me who were looking to track uh, vulnerabilities that we were patching uh, for our customers. So instead of, you know, somebody asking me, hey, you know, do you, did you guys patch for this vulnerability that impacts, oh, let's say Apache? And it's like, uh, yeah, you know, let me, let me check and see what version we have and what version we, we built for your system. And then it's like, then it was it was so much easier to have them say, "Hey, are we patched for CVE? You know, two thousand dash, um, you know, oh oh four five minutes." It was 
much much easier to track things after that so it was, it was a really nice nice thing a nice tool to have yeah so i mean cves is kind of like the difference between having like a name for somebody versus sort of describing how they look like you know the guy with the brown hair and the, you know he's six foot one and <laughs> exactly that's yeah, a great yeah. great analogy yeah so you wrote a blog post this week and talked about your first cve which you were assigned in May of 1999. And at that point, you were working as an administrator, contract administrator at Bath Ironworks up in Maine, obviously a huge defense contractor. Talk just a little bit about that first CVE you received and um, the the kind of story behind it, because it's really interesting. So I had left the, the small consulting company in Maine, um, I think it was 1998 or 99. And I had joined uh, Computer Sciences Corporation, as you mentioned, that was contracted by Bath Ironworks. Now, Bath Ironworks is a, is a large shipyard in coastal Maine and Bath, and they had a lot of computers, a lot of computer systems there. Um, my group was, I was joining the Unix group. Uh, we managed, I think it was close to or over 3,000 Unix systems, and these systems ranged from AIX wow. to IRIX to... Um, we had uh, HPUX. We had, I think there was a couple of SCO systems out there. So there was a, a large playground for someone like me to, to explore systems and just learn more about different flavors of Unix. And I can't remember if it was the what day it was after I started. My manager uh, decided to just take me a tour because Bath Ironworks has a pretty big campus and they have buildings that are spread out at different locations. And uh, he decided to take me to one of their new labs where they had built this SGI lab where they had all of these SGI systems, you know, the, the purple indigo machines. And, and uh, this was their CAD lab that they were generating these 3D models of zones on the ships. And I, I think at the time they were working on a new submarine program. And this was this was part of that. And he sat down at one of the consoles and he said, uh, Someday, you know, when you prove your worth, I'll, I'll give you a login on, on this SGI machine. I'm like, okay. And I knew being into security then that all SGI boxes had an LP account with no password. Uh, the line printer account uh, had a, a valid shell, no password. And you could just walk up to any, uh, at the time, IREX 6 system and type LP and hit enter if it hadn't been secured properly and get logged in. So I walked up to one of the IREX systems. I typed LP, hit enter. And uh, logged in. I said, thanks. I don't need a login. And my manager <laughs> spun around on his chair and he looked at me and said, how did you do that? And I said, well, you know, IREX LP doesn't have a password. This is default, you know, IREX right out of the box. And he looked at me and he said, will you do security for us? And I said, I was hoping you'd say that. So I became the little, I guess, hacker kid for the group. Um, cut to the point, we had this SGI Onyx. So an SGI Onyx is this, was an Onyx 2, was this refrigerator sized um, computer system by uh, SGI. It had its yeah. own data center. It was locked away. It had a. You got a picture of it on your uh, blog post, actually. It's, it's, it's quite a piece of hardware. Yeah, yeah. I think they were retail like $250,000, wow. $500,000, depending on how they were configured. So this thing was like, you know, the, the holy grail of computer systems at, at, at our facility that I was working out of. And there was only one or two Unix administrators, like they were Unix administrators level three. I was a level one, so I didn't have access to it. And these administrators would always sort of henpeck my team and I about not having access to the Onyx. You know, oh, someday, you know, we'll, we'll, maybe you'll get an account on the Onyx. You know, maybe we'll, you'll get a login on there or you'll get the root, you'll get a root uh, access. I've got root to the Onyx. It was a thing we'd hear now and then. And, um, you know, the, the key code to the door was protected. You know, nobody knew it except these guys. And um, if you needed something from the data center, they would get it for you. You, you couldn't go in there. They wouldn't give you the key code. Um, so it was this big protected thing. And I thought, you know, I really want to have access to the Onyx to, to show these guys that um, they're not that special. And I'm like, well, how, how can I get access to this Onyx? And uh, I'm like, well, I could look at another system that has the same operating system as the Onyx. I know I can log in as LP. I know they haven't secured it. So how do I get root on the system? So I had a, I was an SGI uh, desktop that was, I don't remember if it was in my, in my closet or it must have been running and it must maybe it was one of the machines I had 
set up in a lab that I had access to. And I'm like, I'm going to just explore this thing and uh, look for vulnerabilities that can get me root that are nobody knows about. Back then, you know, people were looking to attack the servers or systems. And once you log into a server, you have to elevate your privileges and then wipe your access to the system. That was the big thing that, that guys would do when they, or folks would do when they would log into a, hack into a system. So I, I figured, you know, first thing I should look at is set UID root binaries. Now a set UID root binary is a binary that when you, when you run it as a normal user, it executes with administrative or root permissions. So with that, you know, if I could get that binary to somehow manipulate files on the system, I could eventually, you know, possibly get myself root privileges. So I saw this little, this uh, small binary, I think it was, you know, only 50K in size called MIDI keys. And I thought to myself, what's, what's MIDI keys? So I, and this little, little keyboard pops up on my screen and you can click it with a mouse and it plays these little MIDI files or, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I was playing with this MIDI keys program and I thought to myself, well, if this thing set UID root, why? And what, what can I do with it? You know, it says it can open files and save files. If I want to save my MIDI file, I can save it. Can I open up a file that I don't own? Can I save to a file I don't own, like one owned by root, like Etsy password? So I open up Etsy password. Uh, change my password on it to a, to a, another, or my UID on, on it to zero to make my Larry account zero, save it, and it saves. And my I successfully edited the Etsy password file. So I'm like, this is my way into the Onyx 2. So I thought to myself, I'll log into the Onyx 2, I'll edit the password file, get myself root, and tell the guys and just log out and point a finger at them and say, I hacked in your machine. So I log into the Onyx 2, I forward an X window back to myself with uh, the MIDI keys program, launch the MIDI keys app, edit Etsy password to change my UI user ID to zero, giving myself root access, save it, and then log in as Larry and I'm root. And I'm like, oh, cool, I'm root on the Onyx. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, I should change the password because it's a blank password and that's bad. So I go to, I type the password file and I hit control D thinking, you know, wait, I'm, I can't change the password for Larry zero or Larry, because I'm UID zero. So I'm actually changing the password for root. So I hit control D, control D, thinking I was gonna back myself out of the password program. Irix saved the password as control D. So I inadvertently changed the password for root on the Onyx 2 to control D. And at this point I realized, oh crud, I screwed up. I thought to myself, I just changed the system administrator's password <laughs> on the Onyx without telling it. It's like that sinking feeling in your belly, right? Like, ugh. yeah, I just, I just felt this sort of like sense of dread, like shoot. So me being a, a person of small stature, um, I'm five foot six at the time I was probably 120 pounds. I asked my friend Donovan, who's, you know, six foot three or whatever. He's a big guy. I'm like, Donovan, can you go tell Dave, the sysadmin that, that I hacked into the Onyx and changed the root password? Uh, to control D and uh, Donovan's like, sure, I'll go tell him. So Donovan comes back like, I don't know, 20 minutes or half hour later. And he's like, dude, he's like, they are so pissed at you. And I'm like, why? He's like, you changed the password right when they were logging in, doing a demo for the US Navy. He's like, there was an admiral in there. There was a bunch of like oh uh, senior God. management in there. And they were all about to get a demo of the Onyx doing like a rotation in 3D of the zone on one of the ships. And he's like, they couldn't log in, so I had to scrub the demo. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, holy cow. And he's like, they are mad at you. And I'm like, that's it. I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna get fired, I'm done. And at the time, this was a great job. It was, it was, I was making so much more money in my previous job and I was nervous. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go home and tell my, my wife that I just got fired. So I'm like, all right, I don't have much stuff here. I'm just gonna have to clean out my desk of what little things I have. And an hour goes by, and I'm sitting in my on my at my cubicle, and my manager comes over and he says, "Hey, he's like, we got to go talk you and I with with my manager." And I'm like, "Okay," and I'm like, "Here it comes." Yeah, the cardboard box, you know, get ready to get my pink slip, and I walk into my boss's manager's office, and I see a Sans security poster on the wall, and I thought to myself this guy knows about security. He's, he's like a security guy. And I thought something like, maybe he'll sympathize with me. 
And he's like, have a seat. And I sit down and he's like, look, he's like, I really appreciate what you're doing here. He's like, I know what you've been doing with your security stuff, but he's like, from now on, I need you to tell the system administrators what you're doing and when. He's like, you can't just go and break into systems. There could be something happening like what happened today. So he's like, I'm going to need a report from you on what systems you're targeting, when you're planning to target them, and then who you contacted about targeting them so that, and then they have to tell me it's okay for you to, to try and get into those systems. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, great. I'm like, he just, I just legitimized what I'm doing. I now have a process so I can, I have some authority now. I can say, hey, look, you know, I want to do a penetration test on your system. Um, I'm going to notify my manager and his manager, and you can set up a time with me when you let me, you know, take a look at the system security. And, you know, and it gave me sort of a, like there's some sort of authority that I had now, not, not that yeah. I was just some kid playing on the network. It worked out for you, Larry. It was like, uh, it, did. It, it did. And what was the process back then for, for getting the actual CVE assigned once you had discovered, you know, the back then when you found something, you, you dropped an email to bug track. Um, there wasn't, you know, at least in my case, I didn't notify SGI. I didn't even know how to notify SGI. You know, it, it, it we didn't have, the social media and connections that we did back then. I, I wasn't some old gray beard that was working at Sun Microsystems that had a buddy at SGI that I could just email. You know, I was just some 22 year old punk that, you know, broke into a system and didn't, you know, knew we found this new vulnerability, but didn't know who to talk to. So I pretty much sent it out to bug track, which had, you know, thousands of guys on it, just like me or way, way, way smarter than me that, could say, oh yeah, you know, you know, I've been a sysadmin for 20 years and, you know, when they have a buddy at SGI or actually even SGI would be listening to bug track. So, you know, you just dropped your zero day on bug track with as much documentation as possible with, at least in my case, you know, I tried to make it well-documented with a proof of concept so other folks could test it. And then the folks on the list usually vetted your work. You know, there were guys that would pile on and say, hey, this works for me. You know, I'm running IRIC 6.3. The set UID root bin uh, binary has a, the bit set on it and I tested it and Larry's right. So there were guys that sort of like took my vulnerability and then just made it more efficient and then confirmed it. And then uh, eventually SGI had issued a patch. I mean, it, it's still, t it still can be hard for, you know, independent researchers to know who to approach or, or who to talk to. Not every company out there oh, yeah. ha has a real clear, uh, as, as uh, you know, Katie Maseros will call it, a, you know, a front door to, to I probably get maybe once a month or twice a month, I get someone who reaches out to me over Twitter and says, hey, Larry, I'm a researcher and I've been having trouble getting this vendor to respond. Um, could you help me get a CVE number assigned? I don't really know what the process is. What do I do? Where do I go? And then I sort of guide them through the process. I'm like, well, you can go to, you know, MITRE has a website, cveform. You know, MITRE.org that you can you can request a CVE for, and it, it the process is way more streamlined now. So, you've been assigned more than 300 CVEs in your in your time as a security researcher. I'm sure you've discovered a lot more vulnerabilities, uh, but you you've you've registered yeah. more than 300 CVEs. Um, give us some of the some of the highlights or lowlights, depending on how you look uh, at it. I, there was one that I I really liked um, back in 2000. I was working at a, a small uh, consulting company in Southern California. Again, I had chased the dot com bubble out there, and I was a consultant. And they knew that I liked I was into security because I told them. And uh, the the director of the company said, "Hey, Larry, would you would you mind? We, we're looking to buy this software that will evaluate our logs on our web server." Now, back then, everything was about how many hits you got to your website. If you wanted some venture capitalist to come in and give you money, you know, one of the first things I would ask was, well, how much traffic does your website get? So a lot of these companies were, were really paying attention to their, their web server logs. And, and the company I was working for was no exception. They, they asked me to, to evaluate, you know, this, some log assessing, assessment software. And one of the products I looked at was Sawmill which is this great product um, that at the time I think was developed by one guy. And um, it was great. You could, you could point it at your Apache logs and it would tell you from where somebody came in the world, from your web server, their geolocation, pretty much how long they stayed on each page and which pages they moved to. 
it was a great little piece of software. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try this and I'll install it on one of my lab systems with a web server on it and just examine it. And I installed it and I noticed that it uh, listened on port, I think it was 8987. And it, it had this administrative interface. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of nice. You know, you can log in with your web browser. And um, I noticed in the, in the URL, the get request field that actually had a, a parameter pointing at the log file. And I'm like, well, what if I put a dot dot slash in there? Can I get it to pull other files off of the disk as an unauthenticated user? So I put in dot dot slash dot dot slash Etsy password. And lo and behold, the first line of Etsy password popped up in my browser and it said error, you know, uh, parse error. And I'm like, oh, I can, I can actually read uh, Etsy password with this thing as a, you know, an unauthenticated user. So then I started looking locally at, at the actual um, software and I noticed it had created this admin.db file. And I'm like, well, what's this? You know, and uh, I opened it up and it had a, what looked like, it wasn't a, a crypt hash. It was some other type of cipher of what looked like a password. And I noticed the cipher was the same length as the password I had stuck in there. I'm like, that's interesting. You know, it's not a, it's not a, a crypt hash. It's not like an M, M crypt or B crypt or anything like that. So I started tinkering with it. I'm like, well, I'm going to clear my password out and I'll put a password in as A. So I stuck the password in as A. I looked in the, in the admin.db file and it had a capital Z. And I'm like, that's interesting. So then I put in an, a B just as my password and it had a capital or a lowercase C in the file. I'm like, so A is a capital Z and B is a lowercase C. So then I typed in A, B, C, D, and I got capital Z, lowercase C, um, lowercase R, capital M, one, you know, and then I'm like, is, is this thing like doing a, a substitution cipher? Trans transposition. Yeah, so yeah. I, I went to the binary, typed strings on the binary, and it's literally spit out the array that it was using to translate the alphabet to his substitution cipher. So... I, now this is 2000, I wrote a little C program on my Palm Pilot 3XE that you could stick the password in and it would, or the, the encrypted password, encrypted in quotes, and then it would spit out the clear text. What I ended up doing was, this was 2000, I was dumb, I don't do this stuff. This is one of the learning things that I did, I lucked out again. I logged into the Sawmills, uh, their demo site. I, I, I got on their demo site and I specified Etsy password on their site, grabbed the root login for their server, and then I also grabbed the admin.db file from their server for Sawmill. I decrypted the admin.db file with my little Palm Pilot program. I think the password was Wookie. Logged into the Sawmill uh, administrative interface as admin, where I could execute commands as root and do things like that. And then I told the, the guy who ran the website about it. I'm like, hey, I just found these two vulnerabilities in Sawmill and hacked into your website. Here's the program I wrote. Here's the, the ciphertext that you guys are using or the substitution ciphertext you're using. You know, you might want to fix this. Now that was really risky and dumb. I mean, he could have jumped down my throat. He could have, I don't know, he could have gotten me fired. I got to have gotten in so much trouble. Instead, he was like, hey man, nice hacking. He's like, that's really cool. Here's a free software license. I'm going to fix the fix these vulnerabilities right now and look for other vulnerabilities. Thanks so much for telling me. So I went back to my manager and says, yeah, I like this software. I got you guys a free license because I found some bugs in it. Here you go. Maybe you could just buy me lunch one day. And they were so grateful. They're like, thank you so much. You saved us money because it was a startup. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was one of my, that is one of my favorites that I, I'll never do anything like yeah. that again, but it was. Yeah, I was going to say that, that, you know, definitely can't count on that type of uh, generous yeah, response. Yeah, no, you can't. <laughs> so today, you know, obviously the population of software-driven things has grown exponentially since, you know, the late 90s. And, you know, CVEs have kind of adapted. And one of the changes is, you know, some some specific CVEs just around, for example, industrial control systems and, and some of those types of systems. So talk just a little bit about how the, you know, kind of basic numbering identification system has adapted to the time. MITRE now has, they have different, I guess, tiers or, or sections for, they have an open source 
um, numbering system and they have a closed source system. And then there are many, many companies now that they're, they're their own certified numbering authority. So companies like Microsoft and Oracle can assign their own CVIDs. With all of the internet of things now, there's going to be so many more vulnerabilities because there's so much more software out there. 20 years ago, you know, it wasn't anywhere near as spread out as it is now. And now there's just so many IoT devices. I just literally installed uh, a smart outlet um, so that I can control uh, the the power going into one of my routers because I sometimes have to reset this router because it's flaky. And, you know, this thing... I, I end mapped it, of course, and it has, for some reason, has the uh, an IRC port open on it. So, so the IRC Internet Relay Chat Daemon, the, the, that port number is listening on this device. You know, it's got some sort of service running on the IRC port, and you know, there's mil- billions of these devices. So, <laughs> you have this, you know, enormous network of things now, or Internet of Things now, and those things have software, and th- that software is could have a vulnerability. So you, you know, things have just expanded greatly since, you know, 20 years ago. For sure. I think one of the things that struck me about your story from the, uh, you know, from Bath Ironworks, Silicon Graphics was kind of how, you know, back in the nineties, there just wasn't the same awareness of, of security vulnerabilities. But it strikes me that, you know, with many of these embedded devices, and that story you just told right now is a great example, you know, these IoT devices, it's kind of like back to the bad old days of where there just isn't that much thought given to hardening these devices before you're pushing them out into homes and businesses. It's it's kind of the assumption of, oh, people just won't know to look. Right. You know, you know in the 90s, it, it was, you know, companies would just send things out that worked. You know, you want your, you know, if you want your system to you, you get a new Sunbox and you want to Telnet into it, they're going to have Telnet running by default. Um, of course, they're going to have Echo and ChargeN and FTP and all that stuff running too, but but they just wanted things to work right, right out of the box back then. Not that you had to, yeah, configure your system from a secure point to a usable point. It was, you know, configure your system from a usable point to a secure point. Uh, so, so now I think the IoT manufacturers are going through that same, um, I guess, growth spurt where they got all these IoT cameras or DVRs, all these things. And and those things, they work out of the box, but they're not secure out of the box. So what they're, I believe they're working towards now is making things secure out of the box that also work. So we're, we're seeing, you know, improvements there. Um, not that it's all completely fixed, but at least I think they're trying to improve. So. Uh, so, so two questions. One is, is, is the CVE system such as it is going to scale to meet the demands of the IoT where again, you know, billions of devices and, you know, tens of thousands of types of devices, um, or, or are we going to need something different to handle that surge? And, you know, how do we get these companies making these devices, which are not by and large, you know, software companies in their DNA, um, to plug into something like CVE and and um, really be part of the community. I, I think I'd have to ask someone from from the CVE program at MITRE if they think it would scale. I I think it it will scale um, I, as long as MITRE can keep adding more digits to the CVE numbering <laughs> format. But I, e- easy you know, enough to do. <laughs> yeah, and then you know I would imagine companies are going to have to track their own vulnerabilities by becoming their own certified numbering authority and just identifying things that they've fixed. Um, And this, I think, would be something for consumers to look at when they buy a product. You know, is this company actually concerned about security? Are they securing, do they have a security program to to work on the security of the software that's running on their products? So I, I think that will be something that will push um, vendors to do the right thing by way of their, their consumers, that the consumers ask for it, which is the next thing I was going to say is I think it, it, it comes down to us, the people who are buying things to say, I'm not going to buy this product because, you know, I'm looking at the website documentation and it doesn't seem like these guys have uh, security in mind. They have people in their comment section saying, you know, my camera was hacked and mm-hmm. You know, somebody was talking over my to my baby and I kept asking the, the, the 
sending emails to the support at this at this manufacturer or this vendor and they never answered me, you know, I think reviews like that will be things that will push these these manufacturers to make things more secure. It's it's if people stop buying products that they know or you're just gonna buy it and then you're never gonna hear from the from the, the manufacturer again if there's a patch or a new firmware update you know, that leaves your <laughs> leaves your your baby camera open to uh, you know attack or or hijack or what have you. Of a generous yeah, response. No, you can't. Larry Kestaller, thank you so much for coming on to Security Ledger Podcast and talking to us about uh, your history with CVEs. Thank you. And Larry, um, happy Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Cash Dollar is a senior security response engineer at the firm Akamai. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast, sponsored by LastPass. Up next, as the pandemic drags on, changes to the workplace that were expected to be temporary are starting to look awfully permanent. Chief among them, the shift to work from home and telecommuting that has millions of Americans connecting to the office from their dining room tables or home offices. The pandemic has sent a surge of business to companies like LogMeIn, which makes remote access and security tools for workers and companies. But it is a shift to remote 321. But is the shift to remote work temporary or permanent? And what aspects of our pandemic normal are likely to survive the eventual retreat of the COVID-19 virus? In this next segment, we invited Katie Petrillo of LastPass and LogMeIn back into the Security Ledger studios. Katie and I try to answer some of the questions about how the shift to remote work is changing the office, maybe for good, and how cybersecurity factors into the remote work equation for companies. Katie Petrillo, Senior Manager, LastPass Product Marketing for LogMeIn. Katie, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're uh, we're speaking now uh, kind of uh, end, end part of September. It's been, you know, around nine months now that <laughs> our uh, world got turned upside down by the COVID uh, virus. And I, I wanted to uh, check back in with you because you know, log me in LastPass is one of those companies that was really right in the crosshairs of uh, when when COVID hit, as as everybody shifted to remote work. I mean, obviously, log me in's been doing this for years, and it's it's obviously been a growing trend for years. But COVID just put everything into overdrive. So, I thought it'd be great to check back in with you, Katie, and and sort of see um, how the world looks nine months into this um, pandemic uh, from the perspective from where you're sitting there at log me in. LastPass. Yeah, absolutely. It's been and very interesting nine months to say, and I feel like we've been on this roller coaster now for that period of time. And who knows? Is there an end in sight? Not sure. Um, but I think you know, as you mentioned, Log Me In as a company has really been. We've been doing you know work from anywhere, work from home support for as long as we can we can remember. Log Me In kind of the first time Log Me In originated was with remote access and the need to be able to connect to a computer in Budapest that was on, across town. They have the Buddha in the past, the two sides of the town, and the computer was on one side and the person was on the other and he needed to connect it. And so it's like that concept is all of a sudden became extremely relevant in March when everybody was, you know, working home, working at home on a dime. So, and, you know, we've, we've evolved since then. Um, everyone, I think, is, you know, really settled into being from home. We all have our computers. We're set up. We kind of are getting into a little bit more of a rhythm and a routine. So that's been, that's been interesting. I think one of the things that's changed or we're seeing is at the beginning, it was like, okay, this is going to be for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so. And it, what we're now seeing is that it's going to last. Like, this is not going to be short term. Um, our, our CEO actually shared a stat with us um, a couple of weeks ago saying that, you know, by the end of nine months ago, there was a survey that was, you know, how many employees you expect to be working remotely by the end of 2021. And that number was like single digits. And now that number is around a third of employees. So, you know, you can already see how like this shift for remote work is something that happens occasionally to like, this is going to be part of our, you know, daily, weekly life. So I think that's been the biggest shift is that just how pervasive and longer term this is actually going to be. So, I mean, if we're to look at this whole work from home pie, as it were, mm -hmm. um, what are the pros and cons? I mean, what does LastPass and LogMeIn see as the 
main advantages companies gain um, by by having more of their workers or even all of their workers uh, remote. And then on the flip side, what what are some of the drawbacks or things uh, organizations need to be on the lookout for? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's two sides to the coin. I mean, I think at this point, especially for someone, you know, what we're kind of seeing here at Log Me In is we've proved, you know, people can work from home. They can be very productive. And I think there are definitely benefits that the employees and this is, a, you know, employees across uh, across the world are seeing. And I think the interesting thing to think about or the caveat, when you think about benefits, we have to think about current state versus like normal state. Obviously, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. But if we think about like, when kids are back in school and in daycare and socializing outside of your pod and you have this more of a normal life, I think that's when we can start to think about those benefits that there's a lot there. And we did um, a survey actually earlier in the year just with, you know, knowledge workers asking them about what the benefits were, what they, how they felt about working remotely. And the two, the three things that rose to the top of that were about time. So saving their time, obviously think about commuting, but also productivity. Like it's just, you know, it's, there's no, hallway conversations. And of course that has downsides as well. Um, but you are really able to focus on your work. Um, the other thing is about saving on costs again, where commuting comes in, um, food expenses. And then I think the, the third is really around just spending more time with friends and family and all three of these kind of like they all come together. Um, but I think ultimately what it means is there's just like a, a higher level of satisfaction overall that we're seeing that comes as a benefit of being able to work from home. Yeah. So, I mean, before the pandemic, you know, particularly after school was back in session, you know, in the fall, you know, the morning commute, I mean, I live pretty close to the center of my town and, and um, we've got this kind of crazy intersection that people we're we're like a cut through town that people use to get into Boston. And, you know, in the morning rush hour, you'd see cars backed up you know, 40 or 50 cars from, from this intersection, you know, right past my house, just sitting there, you know, idling and people kind of, kind of slowly losing their mind, you know, Yep. <laughs> and that's just gone. I mean, yeah. it's like, there's just no, I was just thinking of my daughter's first day back to, to high school the other day, you know, which ordinarily would just be a crazy traffic day because of the buses and everything else. And it was just like nothing. And you're like, wow, you know, obviously there's a huge economic impact of this this virus that has not been positive. But you do think about the productivity gains that organizations get just from not having their workers stuck in bumper to bumper traffic getting into the office. And it's not even I mean, there's the traffic and just like, yes, the time you spent there. But you mentioned it like the frustration, like the the. There's just a, you don't have that frustration of like, oh, this commute was terrible and you get to work and you're already frustrated or having a terrible commute home and then being in a bad mood when you get home to your family. Your blood pressure's like gone through the roof. Yeah. Like out of sorts. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that's something that is like gone. I've said this, you know, a couple of times. It's like the like rushing around, that's like completely gone. And I really honestly don't miss it. I mean, I think the other piece of it, though, is there are definitely downsides, as I, as I mentioned, you know, the yeah. security Let's risks. talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which obviously, this is something that here at LastPass, we've, you know, we've been paying attention to cyber attacks. That's what we, that's the business of, you know, what we do. Um, but the f- unfortunate thing is, is as hackers have seen that, you know, people are spending, and this is individuals as well as, you know, business workers, are spending more time online, that there's been more of an opportunity for attacks. So ransomware attacks are up, phishing is, is up. And I think that's really presenting a lot of challenges for organizations when, especially think about IT, all of their employees, they're like, they're out of reach, you know, they're not, how do you make sure that they are secure? And, you know, when cybercrime is quadrupled, it's, it's something that be- becomes a much more challenging thing to be able to address. But I think that's one of the pieces that, you know, that's where people are, companies are starting to focus on now. Um, we did a survey recently um, and we were asking about just kind of like how you would adjust your strategy with remote work. And it was basically 100% of them that basi- that said that they really, the security strategy is where they needed to make the shifts, um, which just kind of tells us a little bit and says that a lot of companies weren't ready. You know, they were not ready for all of their employees to be working remotely on a dime. And I mean, that totally makes sense. Um, but I think that's one of definitely one of the, the open threats that continues to be a challenge. 
Yeah, I mean, none of the, you know, phishing, uh, you know, malicious email attachments, none of those are new. You know, COVID right. didn't bring any of those to the surface. They've no. always been there. I guess the problem, the challenge from the standpoint of a, an employer is, you know, your your corporate network perimeter, quote unquote, is now basically hundreds or thousands, depending on how many yeah. employees you have working remotely, yeah. home networks, right? With, um, you know, teenagers on there with their devices and, you know, a mixture of, uh, you know, the, the DVR and, and uh, you know, the iPad and, and everything else is all kind of thrown in there together. And you've got somebody who's connecting into your corporate network from that. So yep. that that becomes a very tricky security problem and, and management monitoring problem. Yeah. 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 And I think that's where, I think that's where, you know, the, that, that security strategy really comes into play. And if we think about things like just having a simple authentication factor on your work tools, you know, meaning like 2FA, MFA, a biometric that will have, you know, an employee has to verify before being able to get into a machine or an application that just really gives that extra layer of security that, and a lot of companies didn't have that set up or at least set up as broadly as they wanted it to be. And so I think that's where they're starting to take some of those strides to add authentication into their, their, their employees day-to-day, day-to-day work life. Yeah, I mean, it's a small thing and it, it doesn't solve all of your problems, but I'm always amazed at how much just doing something like having two-factor authentication in one form or another reduces your risk, right? How many yep. problems it kind of short circuits. So for companies that, again, are, are kind of wrestling with this problem, you know, we've got all these employees at home. Um, we're worried about their exposure to cyber risk and cyber threats. What are you recommending that they do to address this? I'd say there's two sides to this. One is focus, you know, your employees, what can you encourage them to do? And then what can you do as a business thinking about your IT team? So if we start kind of with those those employees, those just your your individuals, I think a lot of it comes down to awareness, which, you know, we're talking about this, you mentioned this is the end, we're at the end of September, getting into October, which is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, yes, which is a huge, is. huge month for, you know, for security because, and I've already been seeing a lot of, you know, emails and reminders from brands that I follow and I'm subscribed to, you know, giving out advice. And I think, the advice is very similar across the board. I mean, it's really about paying attention. I mentioned, you know, don't click on suspicious links, making sure you're always using those strong passwords. You mentioned, you know, account takeover. The first step to that is don't use password one, two, three as your password. You know, we can't say this enough. So putting those strong passwords on, um, also, you know, then adding the, the 2FA. So you have that second layer of protection. Um I think that's really, really important. And then, you know, keeping your software updated. So if your computer is asking you to update something, make sure you're doing it just so anything outdated can potentially um, allow any any sort of threats in and you don't want that. So make sure things are mm-hmm. updated. Um, the other one is really around just, I mentioned paying attention, but not just to links, but also where is your data online? Um, can you, is there an opportunity for you to sign up for like a a monitoring service where you're able to monitor like your email or certain um, personal pieces of information that could be found on the dark web or be part of a breach. Um, this yeah. is something that LastPass just yeah. announced for where we are now offer that for our, our password management tool. But it's just something that's nice because now anytime that, you know, your email is found on the dark web, I receive an email about it and I alert. So I'm aware Um, And you know, you can go and you can go change your password and it's not hard. It's really just, again, it's about awareness and just paying attention to that. So what about, okay, so that's individuals. Now what, now what about employers? Yeah. I mean, I think on the employee side, it comes back to this kind of security strategy or putting together and making sure you are putting together a strategy to secure the access and authentication of your users. So you know, know your your kind of ecosystem of your employees that are out there, the devices that they're on, and the applications that they're using, so that you can then put together a plan to be able to secure all of those. So, um, and ultimately, altogether, this is you know really your IAM or your identity strategy. And I think the 
it's like I mentioned earlier, to, the multi-factor authentication is a big piece of that. So adding, really being able to verify your employee is who they say they are when they're going into access, whether it's they're even open into open their machine, open their, open their email, um, open that, you know, PO system or financial system that they need to be using. So Katie Petrillo, um, talk to us a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of in the middle of this. It's like you're, you're in the middle of the fog and you're trying to kind of see what's beyond the fog with this with this pandemic. And like you said, it, it, we all thought it was going to be like, I don't know, a few weeks or something. And, and it's, now it's like seven months or eight months and, and we're looking ahead and, you know, there, we know it's going to end eventually, but, but I wouldn't want to have to put a date on when I don't think you would either. Um, what do you think is going to endure from this huge, um, unplanned experiment in um, remote work. You know what? As we come out of COVID and go into the kind of post-COVID world, where hopefully things are a lot more normal and maybe more people do go back to work, what do you think is going to remain and just become kind of an enduring part of um, you know 21st century business culture as a result of all this stuff we've gone through? Yeah, you you just mentioned or we were like the security versus convenience kind of trade-offs. And I think up until this point, we've really we've been talking about it as just that, trade-offs. You know, you can't it's hard to have one and have the other. Like doing both is a challenge. And this is something here, you know, at Log Me and at LastPass, this is a story we tell a lot, and it is something that is possible. Um, and I think what probably this the situation, this pandemic forcing everyone home really quickly and being able to kind of work directly, you know, not needing to go into the office has kind of forced this issue. And I think what's happened is like really proving that, you know, you can have a secure work environment that is also productive. I think it's not going to be about being trade them being trade-offs anymore. It's really going to be something that is can happen collectively together. You know, like I mentioned, you don't have to, you can have your employees having this one click access to their email or their, um, you know, their, their project management system, but, and have them authenticate and have them get in really quickly and have them enjoy the experience. And also you have that peace of mind and control over the access that they are, that they're getting. Um, and I think that's something that is different because I think that's, it's interesting the amount of companies that don't necessarily didn't think that way previously and are now kind of working in that way or starting to think in that way. So I think that's going to be potentially one of the biggest things that will come from this, which is, you know, I'm, we're happy to see that. And I think that's something we, like I said, we've been talking about for a long time and it's actually coming to be true. Yeah, it's kind of the necessities of mother of invention uh, phenomenon, right? So, I mean, yeah. all these organizations that maybe were inclined to, uh, you know, dip their toe into some of these things and be super cautious and, you know, have a very long time horizon have really been forced to uh, embrace them um, yeah. and, and adopt them very rapidly. Um, and um, while that was kind of painful, it also has dividends, I think, down the road for them. You know, it, it kind of opens doors and opens opens eyes to, you know, some of the different ways that maybe you can do business and conduct business. Yep. Yeah, I mean, some of these things that they may have been, it might have been, it's funny how much of a power the employee has or how many, how many of our customers or folks that we talk to that say, I can't do this, I can't add this into my employee's workflow because they'll be frustrated by it or this will cause like fr this will cause yeah. friction even though it is something that is in the best interest of the organization whether that is something like single sign on or 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 a multi factor um and it it certainly is it can very traditionally a best practice they're hesitant because of the employee backlash and i think you know covid is a situation where it's like all of a sudden you know these are things that we have to be doing because yeah. you're now outside of the quote unquote four walls of the office right. um and it will be something that will endure, as you mentioned, you know, beyond once it once we're doing it for a month, I mean, 18 months or 12 to 18 months, it's not going to go away and employees will be used to it. So I think that is potentially one of the biggest benefits that we could see. 
It's like wearing masks. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually. I mean, yeah. we were, you know, United States, not a mask wearing country generally. Now everybody wears masks and nobody really thinks about it that much. Um, and, right. you know, maybe maybe that'll be the case with, you know, strong passwords. Too. Yeah. They're coming in you know, style. Everybody kind of blew it off, but maybe, you know, in a year from now, we'll all just be, you know, having strong, unique passwords for all of our different accounts and and, and nobody will think twice about it. We would be very happy if that were to be the case. <laughs> you know, it's an adjustment. It it it's 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 definitely learning a new skill and and learning. I mean, I because I evangelize with people all the time about this and I, I think, and I'm sure you guys have noticed this, what's hard for people is letting go of the idea oh, that, yeah. that they need to know all their passwords, that this is information that they need to keep in their head and sort of being like, well, if you're keeping it in your head, almost by definition, it's not very secure. Right. Yeah. The control <laughs> and there. You're much better off, yeah, out, so, you know, trusting technology to, to help you do this task, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be that can be a big big leap into the void for people into into the unknown. Absolutely, but I mean, yeah. people don't want to give up that control. It's it it's really fast. Even though it's interesting though, because they their password that they're remembering is something that is really easy, and they're like think that they're yeah. protecting it. And yeah. meanwhile, they don't want it. the real true way to protect it would be to make it something that is completely random and put it somewhere that they don't actually have to yeah. remember it and it's, so it's just this it's interesting kind of like psychology behind it but i think yeah. ultimately comes down to a lack of understanding unfortunately of just what the what the different options and like what these different methods actually are and what the, right. the outcomes are or and kind of like using people of ideas like oh you know if you're using this formula where it's like the initials of the website plus some other you know kind of stand static value like that's not really random or secure, <laughs> you right. know, like kind of disabusing of this ocean. Like that thing that you do that you kind of think makes a random password. It's yeah. Not really random. <laughs> that is not <laughs> random to any sort of a brute force hacker. They will <laughs> no. figure that out. That's, that's not going to work. Katie Petrillo of LastPass and LogMeIn, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us again on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It was a delight. Katie Petrello is the manager of LastPass product marketing at LogMeIn. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast, sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management To adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com.